So we are in the middle of another story in God's word, Luke chapter 2. We're in the middle of the story of God, and we have now gotten to the point in Scripture where we've arrived at the person of Jesus. Now, we spent time in Advent looking at the first couple chapters of Luke, looking at the birth of Christ, looking at all the events that surrounded that. We looked at John the Baptist. We looked at Zachariah and Elizabeth. We looked at Mary. We looked at uh, the shepherds on Christmas Eve. Al told some of that story. Now we're kind of moving out of the birth of Christ and we're looking at who was Jesus. When we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you got to remember the kind of genre that you're reading. This is kind of biography, but not really. It's kind of a story, but sometimes it's not always super chronological. He's trying, they're all trying to answer this question. Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? And then when we see who Jesus was, as we read these stories in the book of Luke, which we're going to continue to walk through in the months ahead, as we see the characters in these stories, we're going to ask ourselves, who is Jesus and how did these people around Jesus respond to him? How did they respond to who he was and what he did? And then we've got to bring this home and ask ourselves, what is this calling out of my heart? How should I respond to Jesus? How should I respond to Jesus? Who is Jesus? How did they respond to him? And how should I respond to Jesus? That's what we're looking at as we look at the gospel of Luke. So this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 22, and we're going to preach through verse 52. We're going to finish the whole chapter, and I'll read it bit by bit rather than all at once. So we're walking through the book of Luke. We're asking this question. Keep this in your mind. If you have a scripture journal, we are going to buy more this week. So if you don't have one, keep coming back. We want to get you one, but look on somebody next to you. We've been giving away journals, and on one side of the page has the text of the Bible. On the other side has blank lines. You can take notes, but write this question in the front and on every page. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And how should I respond? Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Al read it earlier. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now, I want to pause right there after just a couple verses and highlight something we've been highlighting this whole time. Jesus went to great lengths to identify with those that he came to save. That's the first point of the message, these first couple verses. Jesus identifies with those he came to save. Track with me so far in just a couple chapters of Luke. He was born like a baby. How many people on earth have been born like a baby? All right? He's coming just like one of us. He's born like a baby. And and he was actually identifying with the lowly in how he was born. He was born in a manger. He was born to a woman who was not even quite married yet. There's all these events surrounding how Jesus was born, but he's identifying with the lowly. He's identifying with the small and the humble of our world. He This is the son of God, Jesus. We'll find out later in this text that he was very aware of that. But He was embracing limitations. God himself came down and said, I want to experience what it's like to be a man. So he's embracing the limitations of being a man. He's hungry. He's little. He's a baby. Al and I were talking today. It's pretty obvious God was in no rush, right? Because he doesn't just drop the Messiah in as a full-grown 30-year-old and says, go die and then pop back out of earth real quick. 
He puts him down and makes him live an entire life. Jesus has a story, a 33-ish year story that unfolds while he's on earth. He has limitations while he's in that story. He's growing up. He's a baby. He's a child. He's a boy. Look at the way Jesus is identifying with those that he came to save. I want to highlight two things that we see Jesus submit to in this passage. The first one is that he submits to the law of God. Look at how in these first few verses, three times it says the law of Moses in verse 22. In verse 23, it says it was written in the law of the Lord. And then in verse 24, it repeats again the law of the Lord. Luke is trying to get across something to us. And it's that Jesus lived perfectly according to the law that was written and preached and taught and given in the Old Testament. You remember the story of God after the Exodus, after God saved his people out of Egypt? He gave them the law and said, if you're going to be my people, you need to look like me and reflect me so that when the nations see you, they really see me. So here's how you ought to live if you're going to do that. And then he gives them the law. He says, live like this. This is how you should worship me. This is how you should live with one another. This is how you should live with the nations. If you live like this, the people of the world are going to see you, and then they're really going to say, wow, your God must be incredible. We know after reading the story of God that that didn't happen. No one lived according to the law, right? No one perfectly kept it. Look at the greatest people. Look at the wisest person ever lived, Solomon. He was a horrible, wicked sinner. Look at David. He murdered a man, committed adultery. There's no one in the Old Testament that we can look to and say, ah, he got it. But now we have Jesus who, from his birth, he's eight days old in this passage. He's already beginning to fulfill the law perfectly. He's already being circumcised perfectly. They're offering the right kind of purification sacrifice. They're doing everything perfectly. Why? Jesus was perfect. He's submitting himself to the law. And he's submitting himself to what it means to be human. And we've got to step back and ask this question. Why? Why would the author of the law submit himself to the law he wrote? We think of authority and we go, and if I've got authority, right, what do you do with your kids if you've got kids? Our kids, every time, they've learned that they can get past the spiciness of soda. That's what they call it. They say it's spicy because it's carbonated. They've learned they can kind of get past that and they go, I think I like it. We're like, man, I can't give you soda yet. But when we go out to eat, what do Carrie and I get? We get Coke. And we go, just three waters for the kids. We're going, why can't I have soda? I don't know really why, but it's just because I said so. I'm going to drink this. The law's for you. It's not for me. And I I keep wanting to tell them, you have your whole health in front of you. You can do well. I'm long gone. Okay? So the law doesn't apply to me. That's not how Jesus looks at the law, though, right? He's submitting himself to it. Why? Why, why, why? Well, when I ask why, one verse in particular comes to my mind. Hebrews 2.17 says this. He, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? Why did Jesus have to be made like his brothers? The verse continues, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So why did Jesus submit to the law? Why did he submit to being a man, a lowly man? Why? To be made just like us. And why did he need to be made like us? Hebrews 2.17 says that it's because that's the only way he could really pay for sin. The only way he could really pay for sin is if all of us sinners, if he became just like us, but then he never sinned. That's the only hope we had for salvation, and that's why Jesus became a man. 
So that's the biblical reason why. I want to look at someone else who gives us a little bit of an imagination with it. Let's look at C.S. Lewis. He says it like this. One sentence. He says this about Jesus. You have in one man what all men were intended to be. You have in one man, Jesus, what all men were intended to be. See, no person has ever lived perfectly in the will of God, submitting to the things of God, worshiping the person of God, in the joy of God, like God originally planned in the garden. No one's done that. God's original intention is that he would be intimate with man, that we would have a relationship with him, that we would love him, that we would walk in his ways, we would enjoy his presence, but sin ruined all of that. No man has ever enjoyed that kind of fellowship, but Jesus is the prototypical man. What God designed from the beginning, Jesus is perfectly. Let's look again at C.S. Lewis. He says that we don't have to try to climb up into spiritual life by our own efforts. It's already come down into the human race. If we will only lay ourselves open to the one man in whom it was fully present and who in spite of being God is also a real man, he will do it in us and for us. Jesus came to be what we never could. Jesus came to be what we never could so that he could save us. This is the great offer of Christianity that we can share in a life so much greater than ours. We can share in a life that's greater than any life we could ever possibly live if we had a thousand tries. That's why Jesus lowered himself. The son of God became a son of man so that we could become like the son of God. Let's keep reading in the text and see more about what Jesus came to do and who he is If we keep going, you see they're going to offer the sacrifice. And then in verse 25, they encounter a man named Simeon. Later on, Luke includes a little passage about a prophetess, a female prophet named Anna. And I want you to notice in verse 25, the way that Luke describes Simeon. It says he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation of Israel is a way of saying the hope, the comfort, the salvation of Israel. He's waiting knowing that God promised he's going to save him. But I want to highlight one word. It's the word waiting. We just came out of a season of Advent, which is an intentional season of waiting in anticipation. We were actually trying to put ourselves in Simeon's shoes. Simeon was waiting. He had not seen exactly how, exactly who, exactly when Jesus was going to come. He didn't even know his name was going to be Jesus. He just knew it was going to be this Messiah, is what the Hebrews called it. We use the word Christ, the anointed one from God that was going to be sent to bring salvation he knew it was going to come he didn't know when and then we read that he was promised from the holy spirit he was filled with the spirit and god promised him you're not going to die until you see the lord's christ the lord's messiah the anointed one to bring salvation you're not going to die before you'll see him before you die i promise so imagine simeon frequenting the temple where all of these eight day old sacrifices were brought How long do you think it was between when he had this promise from God and when he saw Jesus? Even if it was a year, 365 days, how many infants do you think were brought in during that time? I mean, thousands? How many do you think he looked at, wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the anointed one? 
I mean, the anticipation that must have been built in Simeon, waiting, wondering, knowing he's an old man. He's going, okay, God, time's about to run out. When is he going to come? With every day that was passing, he was getting closer to death, and he was wondering, God, which one of these is the Messiah? Which one will bring salvation? And then in walks Mary and Joseph. I wonder if at first, if the people who gave the poorer sacrifices kind of went in and went a different way than the people who gave the more uh, wealthier sacrifices. And so I wonder if Simeon was maybe looking among the wealthy going, Messiah, Messiah. But when Mary and Joseph walked in, the spirit let him know that's the one. And he breaks out in a worshipful praise prophecy about this baby eight days old do you realize how small an eight-day-old baby is and you hold this baby miracle number one mary lets a stranger hold her eight-day-old baby okay and he takes this baby up and read with me what he says lord now you are letting your servant depart in peace translation god you can take me now I can die. I've seen your Messiah. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Notice how when Simeon is waiting, it says he's waiting and he's filled with the Spirit. So he's not just waiting wondering if, he's waiting wondering when. Waiting plus Spirit equals Hopeful expectation, knowing sure that God will fulfill his promises, and that is faith. Waiting plus Holy Spirit equals hopeful expectation. And that's us. We're waiting, aren't we? The world groans. If you don't know, ask Rick the pain of moving away from people that he's known and loved and done life with. That's hard. If you don't know, go ask Luke and Rachel McElwain who have twin boys and one is extremely sick right now. If you don't know that creation's groaning, go find someone or maybe you don't have to. Maybe this is your story of brokenness and pain. But we endure all of that now, knowing that one day God will make all of the sad things come untrue. Go read the end of Revelation. Every tear, gone. Every pain, gone. Every sin, gone. Perfect fellowship with the Father. So we live now in our broken flesh, tempted with sin, broken, in pain, suffering, going, why, why, why? I resonated. I don't know if you are friends with Rachel McElwain on Facebook, but she said in one of her posts, they said that Jude would be healthier if we took him out of the womb, but now he's sick. And I think she ended it just saying, why? Sometimes we ought not to preach at that, but we ought to go put sackcloth and ashes on and sit next to her and say, why, God? And we ought to go find the Psalms that say, how long, O Lord, are you going to leave us like this? But notice that those Psalms never end without hope. They always end with the hope of this. God, if you don't do it in this life, I know you're going to do it in the next life. I know if you don't heal me here, you'll heal me, you'll heal me there. 
our hopeful expectation is that God will fulfill his promises. Maybe not now, but one day he certainly will. This is why we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. Pray and God will give it to you. God, give me money. Give me a car. Give me health. Give me wealth. And God will give it to you. That's not how God works. We're in a broken world. And we're called to live like Simeon with a hopeful expectation that God will fulfill his promises. But let's not just learn from Simeon. Let's learn from what he says about Jesus. What does he say about Jesus? He's a right, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for Israel. Okay, Johnny, what does that mean? As simple as I can make it, here it goes. Light for revelation. Revelation means to make something known, to reveal. So to Gentiles, which means non-Jews, that's everybody who was not a part of Israel. He's a light for revelation. He's opening up the way for salvation for everyone who was not a part of Israel, everyone who wasn't Jewish. But he was the glory for Israel. What does that mean? He's the fulfillment of all the promises God made to his people Israel. Okay, so sum these two things up. He's opening up the way of salvation for everyone, but he's also the fulfillment of the promises for these special people that God chose. What does that mean? Jesus is the way of salvation for all people. And he came to accomplish salvation for all people. God's salvation, Jesus, will make a way for all peoples and all nations. When Simeon sees Jesus, he says, I have seen the Lord's salvation. To see Jesus is to see salvation. And if you're seeking salvation, then I'm here to tell you that you're seeking Jesus. So again, their hopeful expectation confronts us. Are we hopefully expectant that God will bring salvation to all nations? Or is worldwide missions such a foreign reality to us that we hope someone else thinks about it? Or we're not even really confident all nations are gonna come to know Christ or we say that's someone else's problem? Do we have a hopeful expectation that Jesus really is the way of salvation and really will save all, someone from every tribe, tongue, nation, people? Do we believe that? Do we have a hopeful expectation for that? Read with me Revelation 7, 9. The apostle John has a vision given to him by God of being around the throne of God, surrounded by brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, people, and language. As they worship God. Is that our hopeful expectation? Because if we're really going to talk about the fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy, it didn't just happen during Jesus' lifetime. Simeon's prophecy will not be completely fulfilled until this moment in Revelation 7 when every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people are surrounding the throne of God, worshiping. And let me tell you today, Simeon's prophecy is still not fulfilled because there are unreached people groups everywhere in this world, hundreds of unreached people groups in the United States. That means entire people groups. When I say people group, I mean they have their own culture, values, language, and there is no gospel witness among them. They have no access to the good news about Jesus. Simeon's prophecy remains unfulfilled. Because all of the Gentiles, all of the non-Jewish people groups in the world have not yet experienced the light of God's revelation. So we need a hopeful expectation for Revelation 7-9 for two reasons. One, our world is increasingly ethnocentric, racist, hostile, elitist, angry with people who don't look like us, dress like us, talk like us, increasingly segregated, increasingly monoethnic in everything that we do. 
And it's not just an American problem. Go to the Middle East and you will experience racism. You'll experience nationalism. As old as the earth is, it's how old racism goes. It's how old it goes between nations to hate each other just because of the color of your skin or the language you speak. And again, the creation groans. The racism of our world should cause us to hopefully expect Revelation 7 when the diversity of the kingdom confronts every assumption of our hearts. As if God will speak English. As if Jesus was white. Revelation 7 confronts all of that. Don't let the paintings of our Christ fool you. But the second reason we should have a hopeful expectation of Revelation 7-9 is the much larger picture. And it's what all those nations are doing around the throne. It's that God is worthy of our praise from now for all of eternity. That's why we should have a hopeful expectation that Jesus will complete this work among all the nations. It's that God is worthy of the praise of all the nations. He is worthy. Let's move on quickly to the last section. An interesting story that I read as a kid and I went, see mom, Jesus disobeyed his parents. I don't know if you were like me, if you ever read Luke 2. His parents leave, they go to Jerusalem for the Passover, they stay, they celebrate the feast. They're leaving probably in a big caravan to make the trek, probably about three-day journey back up to Nazareth. They get however far away and realize, oh no, we lost Jesus. At which point Mary goes and finds Jesus, scolds him, and look at what she says. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She kind of slaps him on the wrist, right? Come on, Jesus, we, we got to go home. So we got halfway home, had to come back and get you, and now we got to go back again. What are you doing? So let's zoom out from the story for just a second. Pastor Al said it, I think it was last week, but you see this phrase repeated where Mary treasures up all these things that Jesus is doing. She's treasuring them up in her heart. That's probably a clue that when Luke put all this together, this story, he probably went and interviewed Mary. So I want you to imagine with me what this interview looked like. Probably wasn't a day. Don't think of Barbara Walters special, 60 minutes. You got an hour to ask a bunch of questions and then you're moving on. You got to pre-screen all your questions. This is probably like, they probably spent some time together, right? This is a lot of stuff he wrote down. And I imagine this probably wasn't one of the first stories that was told. Don't think that Mary just told him a bunch of stuff in order that we have it in Luke. Imagine she's telling him all these stories and at one point Luke stops and he just says, wait, when Jesus was a boy, did he know who he was? Right? Like you have these prophecies, Mary, of people are telling you he's going to be great. He's going to be the son of the most high. He's going to be this king that rules forever. He's going to be the Messiah. Remember when he's interviewing him, right? He's interviewing Luke. I mean, Luke's interviewing Mary after Jesus has been resurrected and ascended to, back to heaven. So now she knows. And hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So he's talking to Mary and he's like, okay, when he was little, what was he like? 
That's the question we ask, right? Because we don't have any accounts of boy Jesus. This is the only one in the Gospels, the only story we have between Jesus being born and Jesus starting his ministry, which was probably around age 30. So we've got a 30-year gap with one story when he's about 12 years old. And imagine Luke saying that, did he know who he was? Did he have any idea how special he was, the kind of relationship he had with his father? Did Did he have any idea what he was sent here to do? I mean, Mary, any clues you can remember, and I just imagine Mary going, well, let me tell you this one story, because stories matter. She doesn't say, yes, next question. She goes, let me tell you a story. One time we went to Jerusalem for Passover. It was great, feast. It was, I mean, Jesus really shows 12. So he was about to enter his religious training, really get the scriptures. He was really showing an interest in the teachings going on at the temple. And that year we got all of our caravan and we were heading back up to Nazareth and we realized that Jesus wasn't with us. We said, oh boy, we, we've lost the Messiah. So we hustle back down to Jerusalem and we go find him. And I say, Jesus, we've got to go. We've got to go back home. Your father and I have been searching for you. And Luke, listen to how Jesus responded to me. I said, your father and I have been searching for you. And he replies to me, did you not know I must be in my father's house? But then Luke, even after he said that to me, he submitted to what I was telling him to do. And he came back with me to Nazareth. So yeah, Luke, I I do think he knew who he was. Because when I said your father and I have been searching for you, he was pretty aware of a greater reality that Joseph was sort of his adopted father and Joseph would help raise him and Joseph would teach him carpentry and Joseph would be a good dad. But he knew even as a young boy that his real father, his true father was the one in heaven, the creator of everything. And Jesus was aware of this even at such a young age the true reality that God was his father and he was God's son. If we could take a snapshot of scripture at how rare it was for someone to say, God is my father, you would be shocked. I think God's referred to like 10 or 15 times in the Old Testament as father. I don't know if any of those are one single person saying, God is my father. God's typically referred to as the father of a people or of the nation Israel. And other people say God is the father of Abraham, but Abraham never said God is my father. So you kind of have this jolt of like, oh, what a claim. And what a claim it was that Jesus said, he is my father. See, Hebrews 1 says it like this. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And this is the story of the Old Testament, right? God speaking through the prophets. But now with Jesus, we have a different portion of the story unfolding. Hebrews 1 goes on to say, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. If you want to know someone, are you going to speak to a distant acquaintance? Are you going to speak to a coworker? Or are you going to speak to a son in the home, intimate relationship? You're going to speak to the son. And this lets us in a little bit on why Jesus came. He came to make the father known to us. How did he do that? Well, eventually we'll get to his death and his resurrection that made a way for us. So how should we respond? How should we respond to this Jesus who became like those he was coming to save, 
who is the light of salvation for all nations, this Jesus who's the son of God, how should we respond? Well, let's look at the characters. How did they respond? Mary and Joseph, three different ways. First, they marvel about what Simeon said about him. Then in verse 50, and I love this one, we can all relate here, they don't understand what Jesus said. When Jesus said, didn't you know I must be my father's house? He said, and they did not understand what he said to them. And then in the second part of verse 51, we see that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. So you may have mixed responses to Jesus, and that's okay. As we journey through the gospel of Luke, as you hopefully read on your own, there may be times you are in awe of who he is and what he does. And there may be other times you may read it and go, I don't understand this. That's okay. But here's what I want to challenge you to do, is what Mary did. Treasure these things up in your heart. Meditate on them. Ponder them. Think about them. Don't let go of it. Keep wrestling with who Jesus is. The times you're marveling and you're amazed and the times you have no idea what's happening. Keep treasuring it up. Keep scripture in your heart because I believe, and here's how I pray all of us will eventually respond. I pray we'll all eventually respond like Simeon and Anna. Hopeful expectation. Faith. That as we wrestle with who is Jesus, that we would get to the place where we say, ha, he's here to save me. He's here to change my life. He's here to change not necessarily my circumstances, not necessarily my income, not necessarily my relationships on this earth and what I want or don't want. He's here to change my hope for the future. He's here to make promises to me that can never be shaken. So as you marvel and as you question, please treasure up because I pray that we would all end in a hopeful expectation that God will radically change us through Jesus that he has sent. So I want to speak to two people as we close and as Jake's going to come up and lead us in another song. First, we just celebrated Christmas, Advent, the coming of Jesus into the world. And I've got to ask, has Jesus come into your heart and life? And if he's not, then today is your day. Come celebrate the work of Jesus. Come receive him with hopeful expectation. Come receive him with faith in your heart that he's come to save you, to open up the way of salvation for you. Today's your day. If he has come into your heart and life, then I want to encourage you with the characters in the story today. I want to encourage you with Mary and Joseph. Would you treasure these things up in your heart? That may mean slowing down and thinking about it. Would you allow the person of Jesus to make you uncomfortable, make you squirm, make you question the way that you live so that you become discontent with just this world and the way things are here, but you begin to groan. You begin to realize things aren't the way they should be. And I'm a little too comfortable here. I'm a little too earthly-minded. I'm a little too settled with here and the way things are here. My hope is, is on something that's on this side of death. But I pray that all of our hopes would be moved beyond that. As I heard someone say this week in a sermon, I pray that we would have a trillion-year view of our life, not a mere 80 or 100 years.